I want to welcome every person here today to church. I want to give a special welcome to our viewers across North America, our marvelous friends and our supporters. I want to make an announcement, two announcements. Firstly, we're going back to Cuba in a few weeks with our great friend, Garwin McNeilis. We believe that Cuba is opening. We believe this. We'll be there again in four weeks' time. Number two, we're going to go back to Russia in October and November for a four-week crusade in the Palace of Sport in Gorky. The need in Russia physically and spiritually is more than ever before. Last Sunday, I was listening, watching 60 Minutes. I was devastated by what I heard. I thought I knew a great deal about Russia, but I was devastated by the fact that Russia now has the lowest birth rate of any country in the world. The population is decreasing by almost a million people every 12 months. The reason is the mothers have lost all hope and they're having their babies aborted. Two-thirds of all babies are aborted in clinics. It's their basically only method. Basically, it's their only method of birth control. And they think there's no hope for Russia, and so they're killing their babies. The age, of the age expectancy of the average Russian in the last six years has gone down from 65 to 55. Two-thirds of the Russian people are drinking grossly polluted water. That's why they're saying, bring back communism. Anything is better than this awful life. The Russian people need hope, and hope is found in Christ. Jesus is the only hope for Russia. I do not believe that the time has passed for preaching the gospel in Russia and Ukraine. I believe the best days are still to come. And by the grace of God, responding to the cry, in the name of God, don't forsake us, we're planning our biggest campaign in October and November this year, by God's grace. Let me give you some exciting news. We believe that we should help these people not only in a spiritual capacity, but because of the dreadful health conditions, we believe that we should try to help them with medicines and medical equipment. Therefore, the Carter Report team is sending to Kiev, Ukraine, between 25,000 and 50,000 pounds of medicines next month. And uh, this has been organized by our friend Dudley Snar in Oregon. Uh, we wondered how we were going to get across between 25,000 and 50,000 pounds of vitamins and medicines. You'll be pleased to know the United States Air Force is giving us a plane. And everything is being flown into Kiev, courtesy of the United States Air Force. Uh, I want to say on this occasion, my deep gratitude to the United States government and specifically the United States Air Force that is making a huge jet available to fly it directly into Kiev. 
Uh, they've invited us to go up to the Air Force Base and to photograph the loading. There's a possibility that Eldenor Matiko will be going with the, uh, with the jet uh, as our representative. They've asked us that we have a representative that will accompany all of the medicines and be on hand there when the plane arrives. Of course, if he goes with the plane, we hope that he would be on hand when it arrives. <laughs> and so we want to thank God. We want to thank God who makes all things possible. And we want to express our deep appreciation to the United States Air Force for flying all of this medicine free of charge into Kiev. Glory be to God and thanks to the American government. I also want to say to our viewers across North America, next time you're in Los Angeles or in Southern California, come visit us. I'm the pastor of the Community Adventist Fellowship. We meet Sabbath mornings at 10.45 a.m. for great worship. Great worship this morning, great music. And then we preach the Word of God, and our address is 333 East Colorado Street, Glendale. 333 East Colorado whether you're in Los Angeles or in wherever you live, when you visit here, at least come visit us at our church. Today we're going to talk about men of faith, and the chapter is Romans chapter 4. And so far we've gone through Romans 1, 2, and 3. Today, Romans chapter 4. The book of Romans is considered by many scholars and many theologians the greatest book in the Bible. Certainly the greatest book on the gospel of righteousness by faith. And Romans 4 is about men of faith. Somebody said, faith laughs at the impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. I want you to think of this. Faith laughs at the impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. If somebody had told me a few weeks ago, that the United States Air Force would have joined as our partners to bring help to the Russian and the Ukrainian people, I would have said, you've got to be kidding. But I want to tell you, my friend, faith can move mountains. And faith laughs at the impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. I want you please now to turn to Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 and 6, because here we have these two great characters of faith named Romans chapter 4 and verse 1 and 6, and this, of course, is a preliminary to our remarks on this great book of the Bible. And remember what Tyndale said about this book. He said it was good, glad, and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. Romans 4 verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? So the first character of faith we're going to talk about today is Abraham. And verse 6 introduces the second character. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David and Abraham, both famous Old Testament characters, great men of faith, not perfect men, but great men of faith. And the theme of Romans chapter 4 is that David and Abraham were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and if it works for David, and if it works for Abraham, you better believe it can work for us. The question 
I want you all to think about is this, and this is a question that we all ponder in our hearts, in our moments of darkness, in our moments of self-doubt, we ask the question, is there any hope for me? I've made so many mistakes in my life, I have so many failures, and we ask the question, is there hope for me? I want you to think of these two characters for a moment, Abraham. The Bible tells us that Abraham was called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a great city in the southern part of what we now call Iraq. It was my privilege a number of years ago to visit Ur of the Chaldees when I was visiting Babylon and some of these other cities. It was once one of the greatest cities of its age. They've even found the word, the name Abram, written on one of the buildings of Ur of the Chaldees. We don't say it was the same person, but it was a common name in those days. Abraham was called by God to leave his father's house and to go and seek a better country, the land of promise, to go to Palestine. He was a man of faith. He is called in scripture, beautiful name, he's called the friend of God. He's also called the father of the faithful. And yet when you study the life of Abraham, you soon discover that he wasn't a perfect man, not perfect in himself. The Bible tells us that when he got to the land of Palestine, which of course comes from the word Philistine, and Canaan, the Canaanites, when he got to the land of Palestine, there came an awful drought in the land, and he went down to the land of Egypt, back to the land of the pharaohs. And while he was there, because his wife Sarah was so utterly attractive and so beautiful, he said to her, because Pharaoh is always interested in beautiful women. If anybody says, who are you? Say, I am Abraham's sister. Yet he's called the father of the faithful. And then a little, and this was nothing less than an outright lie. And then a little later, he met a king whose name was Abimelech. And she cast, he cast his eyes at this very beautiful woman. And Abraham said to Sarah, say that you are my sister. And so two similar circumstances, both times he lied his way out of it and got himself into heaps of problems. And yet he is called the father of the faithful because God deals with human clay and God takes us where we are and God works on us by his grace. God doesn't give up on us in a hurry. I'm glad about this. God hasn't given up on me yet, and he hasn't given up on you yet, Daniel. Hasn't given up on us yet. Then the Bible tells the story of Hagar. Sarah couldn't have a baby, and so Sarah said, I can't have a baby, but here is my, my maidservant. Go and sleep with her. And so Abraham obeyed the voice of his wife and slept with her, slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And she gave birth to Ishmael. And there came all sorts of discord in Abraham's household. Then when he was a hundred years old and Sarah was 90 years old, God came and spoke to them. God said, Ishmael is not going to be the person, but your own wife is going to bear you a child. And the next year the child was born. His name was Isaac. A child of a miracle, a child of faith, 
And then the years rolled by, and God said to him, when Isaac was a strong young man, I want you to take your boy and offer him up as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham is now an old man with a long white beard, and he takes his boy and ascends Mount Moriah, and his heart is broken into a million pieces when his boy says, here is the wood and here is the fire, but where is the lamb? And the father, with a heart choking with emotion because this was the boy that he'd wanted for a hundred years, a hundred years, says, God, my son, will provide a lamb for himself. You know the story, how he was prepared to offer up his own boy. So in spite of his imperfections, he is called the father of the faithful. Then there's David. We all love David. We first read of David in any major role when he goes out to fight the giant Goliath, a great man, a huge man, and David is just a boy, and he says, you come to me with a sword and a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. How we love King David. And then we read the story of his relationship to King Saul, and how Saul hated him, treated him like a criminal, tried to kill him, pursued him. And on one occasion, when King Saul was sleeping, David stole in, cut off a little piece of his robe. And his men said to him, now is the time, strike him, because God has delivered him into your hands. He said, how can I strike the Lord's anointed? He was a good man, a great man, but treated like a criminal. Later on, he proved himself to be a mighty man of valor, a man of great courage, a great soldier. And then as the years rolled by, when he was in his prime, after he had conquered all his foes, won all his battles, he was sitting on the rooftop and looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he looked down, and there was a woman who was naked, bathing herself in the eyes of the king. Her name was Bathsheba. And he said to his servants, send for her and bring her. And so she came, and she slept with David. And then a little later, she sent him a message, I'm pregnant. And David said, send for Uriah the Hittite. You know the story. It's a story of shame, unlike David. And David puts Uriah the Hittite in the heat of the battle and says to the commander, withdraw from him. And so... He murders Uriah the Hittite. This is David. And yet the Bible tells me, if nothing else were certain in this book, David is going to be with Jesus in heaven. So this is a story of grace upon grace. David wrote, of course, as you all know, the book of Psalms. He wrote the psalm, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. How many people has David comforted? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some of the scripture songs we sing in this church are the words of King David child of God, a saint of God. He wrote in the moment of his deepest despair, Psalm 51, 
And before you turn to Romans 4 again, I want you please to notice Psalm 51, which is the psalm that he wrote after his affair with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, I want you to notice some of these beautiful words, the cry of his heart to God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so we come to Romans chapter 4, which is the story of King David and the story of Abraham the father of the faithful. Would you please turn to this great chapter? Romans, the fourth chapter. And notice the great theme of this chapter. Romans 4, verse 1 and onwards. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What is Paul talking about? He refers to this matter. He says, what has Abraham told us concerning this matter. What is the matter that he's talking about? He's talking about Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. In Romans chapter 1 he said, the Gentile world without God is lost and doomed and damned, stands under the judgment of God. And then in Romans 2 he says, the world of religious people, talking of his own day, the world of the great church of organized religion is lost and doomed and damned, stands under the wrath of God. That's what he says. And then in Romans 3 he says, every man is lost and we all stand under the wrath of God. And there's no hope except in what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then in Romans 3 he brings the mighty argument that the law cannot save. He says the law cannot save because the religious people haven't kept the law. The law cannot save because the non-religious people haven't kept the law. And in Romans 3 he says the whole world stands before the bar of God and is pronounced guilty before the judge of all the earth. And he says, now we know whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable before God. But then in Romans 3 he says, God has devised a different way to save man. It is not through obedience to the law. It doesn't depend upon our works, he says. It depends upon the works of God himself. And he says, a righteousness from God has been revealed. And this righteousness 
is accounted, it is reckoned to the sinner's account when he comes in humble faith to Christ and believes. And the Pharisee shouted, heresy! And many people in the Christian church, the Judaizers, raised their voices and they said, Paul is teaching heresy. He's saying that men are justified apart from the law of God. That men are justified not because of their attainment, but they're justified because of God's atonement. And they cried, heresy! And Paul says, I will prove to you that this is no heresy. I will show you that this is the doctrine of the Old Testament. It is not my doctrine, he says alone. It is the doctrine of the Old Testament. It is the doctrine that saved Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. It is the truth that saved David, the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba. And if it can save David, and if it can save Abraham, it can save you also. And that is the theme. He says, what then shall we say? Therefore, concerning this matter. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. And my friend, I want to tell you a little history. It was credited to Abraham as righteousness before he was circumcised. Abraham was an old, old man when Ishmael was born. And then he was circumcised. But before he was circumcised, when he put his faith in God, God declared that he was righteous not because of his circumcision and not because of his success in obeying the law of God, but because of the mercy and the grace of God. We are not saved because of circumcision. We are not saved because we have kept the law of God. We are not saved because we are members of this church. We are saved by the grace of God through faith. This is how Abraham was saved. This is the teaching of the Old Testament. Now when a man works, verse 4, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. I wonder if you perceived these words. I had a man once write a paper against me and my teaching on righteousness by faith. He said, Carter is a heretic. He teaches that God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> he says, Carter teaches that God justifies the wicked. Poor man had never read the book of Romans. Never read it. The Bible says that God justifies the ungodly, the King James Version. And this word here is even stronger. God justifies the wicked. No wonder the Pharisees shouted out in the church, heresy, because 
There is a text in the Bible that says, Cursed is the man who justifies the wicked. Speaking to the judges of the Old Testament, God says, Do not justify the wicked. But God apparently goes against his own law. And God says, I justify the ungodly and the wicked. On what basis? On the basis that on the cross, Jesus Christ, as my atoning sacrifice, took the sin of the wicked upon himself. And because he bore the sin of the wicked, when the wicked comes to him in faith, God, as the righteous judge, declares that the wicked is now righteous. That's the good news. That's how we are saved. We are not saved because we are good people. We're saved because we recognize our ungodliness and our wickedness and we come to Christ and say, have mercy. The Pharisee couldn't understand this because the Pharisee believed in performance. What I can do. He had the religion that I've mentioned before. Do, 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 cock-a-doodle-do. But the religion of God is grace upon grace, not my works, but his works. Martin Luther said a statement that the Pharisee can never understand. Martin Luther said a Christian is always a sinner, always a penitent, always right with God. A Christian is always a sinner. The person says, this is a heresy. We are always sinners in the sense that we are falling short of the glory of God. We are never good enough. None of us are ever good enough. And the Bible teaches, as Martin Luther teaches, that we are always falling short of the glory of God. And therefore, a Christian is always a sinner, always a penitent, always falling down before the mercy bar of God and saying, I come to you and I hold up the cross and have mercy on me. Therefore, he's always a penitent, and he's always right with God. This is the way Abraham was saved, and this was the way David was saved. Now, for some of you here today, this is a new doctrine because you haven't seen this before. Open your hearts. Verse 7, David says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, did God forgive him for his sin with Bathsheba? Don't you know? Did God forgive him for his adultery? Did God forgive him, give him for his murder? Yes, he did. And if God forgave him for adultery and murder, there is hope for you and there's hope for me. Hmm? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it only for the Jewish person or is it for the Gentile? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe who have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. 
And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is why the Pharisees shouted heresy. Because he is saying, you can be saved without circumcision, and circumcision was the sign of the covenant. But Paul is saying here, when a person comes to Christ in true faith, whether he is circumcised or uncircumcised, he is accounted righteous and his sins are forgiven and God writes his name down in glory. My friend, this is true for you. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whatever your nationality, if you come to Christ in faith, then you are declared righteous and your sins are forgiven today. You're ready for the second coming. I've gone to camp meetings where they say we're going to start a program to get people ready. I don't want a program that's going to take me months and years. I want to be ready today. God's got a program here. It says I can be ready now through faith in Christ. Verse 13, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world just as well because none of us have kept it. But through the righteousness that comes by faith, for if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. There are two ways that you can be saved. Try to be saved. By the law. I wish you well. It means you must keep the law of God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing 24 hours of every day from the moment you were conceived. No impatience once. No being late for an appointment once because that's selfishness. No intemperance. Eating exactly the right food at the right time. Perfect faith. Never a moment of discouragement. Never a day when you haven't got out of bed and the first thing you've done is get down on your knees and pray to God. You love your neighbor as yourself. That means the person next door who wakes you up on Sunday at 6 o'clock with that wretched lawnmower. You love him as much as you love yourself. That you've kept every Sabbath in such a way that you've never thought a worldly thought for one second. Who here is going to come and stand before God and say, I'm ready for that sort of righteousness? Only a fool, only a lunatic, because such a person must surely be deluded. Now there is another way. The Bible says the promise isn't through the law. The promise is through Christ. And that is a sure promise because Christ is the one who kept the law of God perfectly. And he says, you trust in me and what I did is given to you as a free gift. It's given to you as a free gift. Therefore, therefore look at verse 16. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be what? Guaranteed. I want something guaranteed. May be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. 
He is the father of us, of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Listen to me. There's so much in this chapter. The Bible says, this, listen to me, it says, this salvation is guaranteed. How can it be guaranteed? If it depends upon my performance, my friend, there is no guarantee. But it doesn't depend upon John Carter's slipping and sliding and falling. It depends upon Christ. And because it depends upon Christ, it is guaranteed with the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus depends, guarantees it. Not your stumbling, not your imperfections, not your weakness, not your endeavors, but it is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. What a guarantee. Guaranteed. I can go tonight to bed and I can go to sleep thinking it is guaranteed. Oh, I know I make mistakes. I know I stumble. But it is guaranteed because Jesus said so. Isn't that something? It's guaranteed. I don't have to have a nervous breakdown whether I'm going to get to heaven or not because God the Son said it's guaranteed. Now verse 18, against all hope, oh this is great, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. What's it talking about? It's talking about an old man, and he's about a hundred, and his wife is about ninety. And three angels come and talk to him. And Sarah is in the part of the tent where the ladies were. Because they didn't come out when the men had business to do. <coughs> I don't agree with it, but I can't help it. I wasn't back there. So Sarah is in the kitchen or in the pantry. And Abraham is doing business with the three angels. And they said, where's Sarah? Well, she's back there. Sarah's listening, ears flapping in the wind. <laughs> this time next year, Sarah is going to have a child. She's 90, Abraham's 100, and Sarah says, you got to be kidding. <laughs> and the Bible says, she is laughing. You know what the word Isaac means? Laughter. Christianity ought to be filled with laughter. 
It ought to be a glad thing. And when your salvation is guaranteed, you can laugh even in the pantry. And so she's laughing and laughing. And the angel said, Did you laugh, Sarah? She said, Not me. <laughs> but they believed in God. God can take a dead body and make it live. Because the God we're dealing with here, my friend, is the God of the impossible situation. God can do it because He is the Lord God Almighty. God can do things that are contrary to human nature when it is His will. I read in the pulpit commentary yesterday, that very boring commentary, which on occasions has a few stars. It says, the voice that rolls the stars along spoke all the promises. The voice, didn't you get it? The voice that rolls the stars along spoke all the promises. I was reading recently about a man in New York City, a Roman Catholic man with faith. He got a cancer in the brain. I said, you're finished. They cut a hole in his head and they didn't fill it up. They left it open. He went back to work wearing a hat. When people said, what do you got a hat on? He said, have a look. Take his hat off. You see his brain. He said, I'm going to live. He said, I have faith in God. He had an anointing service. God doesn't always do it. I know, I know. But God did it to that Roman Catholic man with his brain pulsing outside of his skull and the cancer shriveled up. He believed that God can do it. God can do it. God took Abraham, 100 years old, Sarah, 90 years old, and gave them a baby. God can do it. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also to us, for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Why does the Bible talk about Abraham and Isaac and Sarah? Because Abraham and Isaac were as good as dead. And the Bible says, Abraham believed in a God who can raise the dead. Can you see a parallel coming here? We believe in a Christ who was dead, but God raised him from the tomb. And the Bible says, as Abraham believed in the God who can bring life out of death, so we will be justified if we believe in Jesus who was raised from the dead. And he was raised for our justification. What does that mean? His resurrection was the ultimate proof that God had accepted his atoning sacrifice. Now pull it together. Here are two characters. One is a major character, Abraham. One is a minor character in this chapter, David. Both sinners, both faulty, both making mistakes, both 
declared righteous because of the mercy of God. I say to you, if God can save Abraham, if God can save David, God can save you, and God can save me. Glory be to God. Now, I want you to do this. Here I'm going to give you a little summary. Salvation is for the person who feels his need. That's why it's so difficult to preach to some churches. You go to some churches and they're so dead. You know what I'm talking about? You can't have an altar call. Well, you could. But nobody thinks he's a sinner. The preacher thinks he's righteous. The congregation, they think they're righteous. And they're cold. You know what I'm talking about? They're judgmental. They criticize. It's very hard for God to help them. What must I do? I must pray the prayer that Billy Graham teaches people. Dear Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. People say, well, when you become a Christian, you, you don't need to pray that anymore. I've had them say that to me. I read Scott's commentary last night, and he said this business about God justifying the wicked, that doesn't refer to us Christians. Folks, as a Christian, every day, I need to pray the penitence prayer. Lord, here I am. Here's John Carter. He's a sinner. Made a lot of mistakes today. Said something in the church service I shouldn't have said. <laughs> but Lord, have mercy on me. And I come to you confessing my sin and claiming the righteousness of Christ to cover me. Who here today feels that he's a sinner? Can I ask the sinners in the church to stand up? You know, want to know the difference between a saved person and a person who's not saved? An unsaved person doesn't see himself as a sinner. If you go down the street in Hollywood and take a survey and say, you a sinner, sir? What do you mean? Of course I'm not a sinner. That's why most people can never apologize when they're wrong. That's why so many fathers can't apologize to their kids when they're wrong. That's why so many husbands never apologize to their wives. They can't do it. That's why so many wives can't apologize to their families when they're wrong. You know why? They're in darkness. Their minds are in darkness. They do not know that they're sinners. So when we stand today, person says, well, this is humiliating. No, it's not. It's reality. We are sinners. But the good news is God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> so the person who thinks he's godly, well, just forget it. You're not going to get there. But the person who says, Lord, I am ungodly, I am unlike you. But I come to you 
and I trust in you, and I believe in you, and I throw myself without reservation upon your mercy. The good news is, God says, here is a guarantee I'm giving you, Bob. The guarantee is written down with my blood, and the guarantee says, you are going to heaven, I guarantee it. And that's why Tyndale said, it's good, glad, and merry tidings that makes a man's heart to sing for joy and his feet to dance. I want you to bow your heads with me. Our Father, we thank you for this great, great story. We thank you it's by grace and grace alone. We thank you that when we found that there was no other way, and we were cast down in despair, that the shadow of a lonely cross arose upon a distant hill, and there the Holy Son of God stretched out his hands and took hold of the Roman nails. When they said, come down from the cross, he said, I won't. We thank you that he held onto those nails bearing our sins, bearing our adulteries, our Sabbath breakings, our pride, our arrogance, our racism, our selfishness. And he held onto those Roman nails until his great heart was broken. We thank you today that we are saved by works, but we thank you it's not our works. We thank you it's the works of the blessed Son of God. We thank you that when he was about to die, he looked up into the Father's face cried out in faith, it is finished. We thank you that on that cross on a Black Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon, God finished it. We thank you it was determined, it was dead, it was done when he said, into your hands, O Father, I commend my spirit. We thank you that he was raised for our justification. We thank you that he lives. And we thank you that salvation is assured. It is guaranteed to the person who comes and falls at the foot of the cross and says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. As we're praying today in our beautiful church, as we stand in the presence of God the Father Almighty, the judge of all the earth, how many will raise a hand and say, Lord, give me the guarantee today. Give me the guarantee. Lift up your hand high. Don't go out of this church unsaved and lost. Lift your hand up high and say, Lord, give me the guarantee. I'm a sinner. But I'm a penitent.
and by God's grace, I'm right with God. If Abraham could get there, and if David could get there, I accept the guarantee. Bless you, Father. Glory be to God. Can we say today, glory be to God. Glory be to God. Say with me, glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you forever. Amen. Havana is a city of more than three million souls. For many, many years, these people have been desperately waiting for the preaching of the everlasting gospel. You see, preaching in public halls has been forbidden in this place. As I met with the leaders of the church just last night, they said to me, we need to hear again the preaching of the everlasting gospel. This is one of the greatest challenges, perhaps the greatest challenge of my life. I want you to pray with me. I want you to become my special prayer partner. As I stood here just a few moments ago, I was looking down here at the, at the harbor, the harbor at Havana in Cuba. I saw the sea coming in. I thought to myself, nothing can stop the tide coming in. Nothing can stop, my friend, the tide of the everlasting gospel. When God's time has come, nothing can stop the tide from coming in. We saw this in Russia. We saw this in Ukraine and we're going to see this here in the land of Cuba. I think today the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew chapter 24, this gospel of the kingdom, this good news of the kingdom is going to be preached, it will be preached in all the world, and then the end is going to come. When Jesus said in all the world, he included Havana. He was talking about Russia. He was talking about Ukraine. He was talking about Canada. He was talking about the United States of America, and he was also, my friend, talking about the people who live here in this beautiful island which is called Cuba. I want you to be my special partner. Help me to provide them with Bibles. Help me to bring to them the living word of the living God. Would you please write to me, John Carter, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358. Let me give it to you again. John Carter, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 91358. Please pray with me for the millions of people living here in Havana that very, very soon they will hear the preaching of the everlasting gospel.